Before we read the scripture, let me ask that question we've been asking for a few months. Who's your one? Who's the person God has put on your heart most who either needs to discover Jesus or needs to come back to faith or come back to church? Who are you praying for? Fix that person's name in your mind. Let's pray for them right now. God, we pray for the one person that you put on each of our hearts most dearly, most clearly. Right now, we silently mention their names to you. And we ask that you'd work in their lives. We ask that you'd open their hearts, their minds, their eyes, and their ears. They'd give us an opportunity to model grace before them, to love them, and the right time and the right way to add words to that mix. We ask that you put other people in their pathway who can speak truth into their lives in a way that they can hear. And we pray that your transforming grace would take hold. And Lord, maybe some of those ones are right here in this room. And we pray that today you would open them up to see something they'd never seen before and to radically decide to follow you and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 9. We're working our way through the gospel. We're beyond the halfway point. And uh, this is the story of the transfiguration. So uh, I'll ask that you read with me. Mark 9, verses 2 through 13. Here's the gospel. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, And a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. Lord God, give us understanding into these words of Scripture and into the life of Jesus and to this moment of glory that we see here in the transfiguration. I pray that you would not only give us understanding, but in the process of understanding, we would come to discover something more, something deeper about the way that Jesus prepares us, the way that Jesus unveils truth and vision and insight. Lord, use these things 
to make us more like him. That's our goal. So we ask that you would, again, cleanse us from every sin and every wrong, that you would restore our focus to embrace your purposes in our lives, and that we would follow you more wisely. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. When was the last time you had this thing that we sometimes call a mountaintop experience? I don't know about you, but I've had several of them in in different ways. Uh, Some of them were in physical locations on a mountaintop. One of my favorite mountaintop experiences came about 10 years ago when our family took a ski trip to Colorado. It was during a Christmas week, and I remember we finished all of our Christmas Eve services, and then very early the next morning we flew to Colorado, and uh, it was on Christmas Day. And later that day, about a foot of powder fell. And so early the next morning, we got up and we were out on the slopes and we were like the first ones that were out there. There was hardly anybody else there. And there's this tremendous deep powder that we were skiing in. And we came to one of the first vistas and I took this photo. It just captured the the beauty and, and the glory of the mountains. And I remember standing there and saying, God, you speak to me here. Ever had one of those? More than 25 years ago, Sue and I climbed up a trail to one of the mountains surrounding the Swiss village of Grindelwald. It was a beautiful, steady climb, and I had our one-year-old daughter, Annie, and a carrier on my back. On the way down, we decided to climb down a different path that took us through a mountainside village where there were sheep with old-fashioned bells on their collars. It was, it was incredible, uh, the, the sight that we saw. And this trail looked down over the village of Grindelwald. I didn't take this picture, but that view looks something like this. This is Grindelwald looking down from the mountains. And just one more. About 10 years ago, my father-in-law and I spent our last afternoon and evening of the Band of Brothers historical tour at Hitler's Eagle's Nest above Berchtesgaden, Germany. The technical name for this in German is Kelsteinhaus, which literally means mountaintop house. Uh, Martin Bormann uh, had built this in 1933 using Polish labor camp workers as a gift, uh, creating a great gift for German Chancellor Adolf Hitler. General Eisenhower sent the 101st Airborne's Easy Company, otherwise known as the Band of Brothers, to capture and preserve this chalet high up in the Alps. One tour group, or our tour group, had our breakup dinner there on the final night of our tour. And just before dinner, the, the leader of the group's wife asked me if I would say a blessing before the dinner. We hadn't done anything like that in all of the 14 days prior. And as I thought about that, the first few lines of Psalm 121 popped into my head. And so I stood there and I quoted them before everybody else. I lift up my eyes unto the hills or the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And it hit me that night that we were standing in this lodge that was built to honor Hitler, who sought to wipe out the Jewish people and remove them from the face of the earth and who was the first to call America the great Satan because he hated our nation and the Christian faith that was so dominant among our people. Despite all the evil he launched, it hit us as a group that God's truth stands higher than the mountains, and man can throw its worst at him, and he still prevails. The scene we are looking at this morning includes perhaps the greatest mountaintop experience that we find in the Gospels. 
We're looking at Mark chapter 9, and our topic is moments of glory. And here's the central idea that I want to get across. When you've seen the glory of Jesus, you know that no one else compares, and you can face whatever lies ahead. When you've seen the glory of Jesus, you know that there's nobody else like him, and God uses those moments to prepare us for what is yet to come. How do we learn from these moments of glory? Four observations. Here's the first. Jesus understood the power of mountaintop experiences. Verse 2 says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone, and there he was transfigured before them. Mark ties this event to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah that we looked at last Sunday. That declaration came at a place called Caesarea Philippi, And that particular city was known for several pagan religious rituals and leaders and gods through the years. More recently, it had become the site of a gleaming white temple built in honor of Caesar Augustus. And this was one of those places where people claimed that Caesar is Lord. So it was very, very significant that Jesus asked the question that day of the disciples in that setting, with that temple in view, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered boldly, you are the Messiah. Now six days later, Mark tells us that Jesus took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to a high mountain. Local tradition claims that this was Mount Tabor. But there's a problem with that thought in that Mount Tabor was only 1,840 feet high. And this says they went to a very high mountain. Several New Testament scholars think it was more likely that they climbed Mount Hermon instead. And part of the reason for that is that Caesarea Philippi stands at the base of Mount Hermon, so it was very close, and it's 9,000 feet high. So think of it, it's like climbing one of the Rockies that you would find in, in Colorado. It's that tall. Luke's account tells us that Jesus went there to pray And he took Peter, James, and John, this inner group with whom he invested more time and sometimes allowed them to see things and hear things that the rest of the 12 didn't hear or see. God had orchestrated moments of glory or mountaintop experiences before. Think of Genesis chapter 22. It describes there how God sent Abraham to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the son that he'd waited so long for. But before any danger could take place, God sent an angel to stop him and provided a ram that would be sacrificed instead. Or when Moses met with God face to face on the top of Mount Sinai, when Moses met with the Lord, his face glowed from being in the presence of God's glory, so much so that it intimidated the people. And each time that he would meet with the Lord, they would ask him to put on a veil because it was too much for them to handle. Imagine if it was too much for them to handle the reflection of God's glory onto Moses' face. What must the full-on glory of God be like? And in Exodus 33, the Lord allowed Moses to climb into a mountain and to see the glory of the Lord passing him by. Not to look on his face, but to look on the form that he came in that day. Then there's another scene where Elijah called down fire from heaven on top of Mount Carmel. That day he defeated 450 prophets of Baal as he stood all alone calling on God to light this sacrifice that was soaked with water on fire. And by doing so to demonstrate that he is the one true God. 
And then the Lord appeared to Elijah on the top of Mount Horeb, speaking to him in a whisper. Not in the earthquake, not in the wind, not in the fire, but through a whisper. God had orchestrated moments like this before, and now Jesus was taking his disciples to a mountaintop experience. When you experience one of those mountaintop days, maybe you're climbing a mountain, maybe you're part of the, the guy wire team that goes on these epic hikes in the mountains, and you stop and you see the grandeur of all that, and you realize how small we are, stop for a moment next time and let that sink in and talk to God. Ask him what he wants to reveal to you about who he is and about his grandeur. Maybe even think of this moment as Jesus and his disciples climbed that particular mountain in Israel. Here's the second observation. Jesus' glory, when you experience it, when you have a sense of it, is breathtaking. So we go back to the end of verse 2 again. There it says, there he transfigured, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And notice verse 6 is in parentheses. These are the words of Mark, but the, the translators have said the only way we can make sense of this verse is to put it as a parenthetical thought. In other words, they're describing what was going on in Peter's head. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. All right, some questions abound. What is a transfiguration? The Oxford Dictionary definition says, a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. Merriam-Webster's dictionary says, an exalting, glorifying, or spiritual change. Add to that the word that the New Testament Greek uses here is the same word from which we get our concept of metamorphosis. It is a Greek form of that particular word and concept. It means something changing from one form radically into something more beautiful. So think of a caterpillar shedding that cocoon and becoming a gorgeous butterfly and flying off. The word that we use for that in science is metamorphosis, and it's the same word that the New Testament uses here to describe this transfiguration. So it's a transformation from one form into something more beautiful, more glorious than we had known before. Luke's account adds uh, another detail to this. He says that this occurred while Jesus was praying. In other words, Jesus didn't all of a sudden flip a switch and make it happen, but that God chose to reveal something about Jesus in that moment. And then his disciples saw these three changes. The first was his countenance. In other words, his face was changed. Matthew said his faith shone like the sun. That's bright. Second, his clothing became dazzling white. So Mark describes it this way, saying it was whiter than any bleach could make any other garment. And the third factor was that his companions were terrified. His countenance was changed, his clothing was dazzling white, his companions were terrified. Matthew tells us that they fell face down on the ground, terrified in that moment. So face down on the ground we come to realize that Peter and the others were stupefied. They didn't really know what to say. James and John reportedly say nothing at all. They're on their faces too, stunned. But Peter, the impulsive one, the one who always speaks first, 
comes up with this comment saying, Lord, this is good for us to be here. I think what we should do is make some shelters. We'll make some tents. We'll have one over here for Moses, one over here for Elijah, and we'll have another one from you for you. And notice what happens immediately after. The Lord speaks very quickly after he says that. Mark puts that parenthetical thought as if to explain to us what Peter was describing here and suggesting here was absolute nonsense. God had no intention of making this moment linger longer than it did. He had no intention of Elijah and Moses camping out with Jesus. This is just Peter saying the first thing that came to his head. It's kind of stupid. And the Bible's telling us here it was kind of stupid. That's why Mark puts this thought in parenthesis. As if to say, disregard Peter right now. Peter is just being Peter. I don't know about you, but I love it when the Bible includes those details about the disciples because it gives me hope that you and I who bumble through life sometimes we're not that different and God did great things through them and he can do great things through you and me too despite the way that we bumble and stumble along. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe this event. Matthew and Luke include a few more descriptive words than Mark does, and it becomes clear that they are describing the same occasion, but they struggle for words to fully describe how mind-blowing this experience was for them. The impact of this reality is that anytime you and I have an experience where Jesus reveals his glory, a mountaintop experience where God whispers into your life, his glory will blow you away. Here's the third discovery. These are the words that I wrote as I was thinking about this. My Jesus is too small. Your Jesus, no matter how much you think you understand him now, is always too small because he's much greater than we can imagine. Go back to verse Uh, five Peter says to Jesus rabbi it's good for us to be here let us put up these three shelters that we talked about one for you one for Moses one for Elijah he did not know what to say because they were so frightened verse seven then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud this is my son whom I love listen to him suddenly when they looked around they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus So, go back for a minute. Immediately after seeing Jesus with this dazzling appearance, and they fall on their faces in terror, Peter speaks these very inadequate words about shelters, and then God the Father's voice calls out from heaven. Peter suggested putting up these three shelters or tents, and then boom, they hear the word of the Lord. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Matthew reports that when they hear the voice of God, this is when the three disciples fell on their faces, terrified. So what did God want them to know? First, by suggesting that they put up these three shelters, Peter was suggesting that Jesus was equal with Moses and Elijah. 
Now, that would have been a big deal for a lot of people in the first century. They looked up to Moses. Moses was considered the greatest of all the leaders, of all the prophets who'd ever come. And Elijah was next to Moses in the estimation of first century Jewish people. So, to speak of Jesus in the same vein with Moses and Elijah was a huge and high compliment. Except, God didn't think so. Because Jesus isn't merely a prophet like Moses or Elijah. In fact, Moses and Elijah, as great as they were, could never compare to Jesus. And so in a correcting way, God speaks into that moment. Don't you understand? No, we're not going to put up tents. No, we're not going to treat them as three equals. You don't understand. This is my son. Listen to him even more than you listen to Elijah. Listen to him even more than you listen to Moses, he's saying. And God was correcting Peter's small-minded suggestion that Jesus was only on the same plane with Moses and Elijah. Only Jesus is God's unique, one-of-a-kind son. As I was pondering this, it hit me, wow. I thought this was a great honor. My vision of Jesus is still too small. My Jesus, the Jesus in my head, is greater still than I have comprehended yet. Moses and Elijah were not there to lift Jesus up to their level. Moses and Elijah were there to show the disciples the grandeur of Jesus, that he was greater still. Moses and Elijah and the prophets had all pointed to Jesus in the scriptures, and now they were confirming the unique and central role of Jesus in God's redemptive plan. And in the end, when God finished speaking, they were gone, and only Jesus was left. Only Jesus. No matter how I try to describe or compare Jesus, my words will always be too insignificant. My Jesus will always be too small because he's greater still. So the prophets serve Jesus and point to Jesus. They are not on his level. The gods of other faith other faiths may be compared to Jesus, but they will never be on his level. The voice of God rings out from heaven, listen to Jesus, only Jesus. I have a question. Are you and I listening to Jesus? It is so easy for the other voices of our world to filter in and to commandeer our attention. Are we listening to Jesus first and foremost above all others? Brian Burrell, a pastor from Illinois, writes this thought. He says, incidentally, if you were to go up Mount Tabor today, the traditional location for the transfiguration, you would find there three shrines or memorials, one to Moses, one to Elijah, and one to Jesus. He goes on to say, this misses the entire message, doesn't it? They should instead put up a big sign that reads, but Jesus only. (laughs) In other words, a lot of the modern historians that try to look at these places They're just as stupefied as Peter was that day, maybe even more so. They missed the message. Here's the point. When you've seen the glory of Jesus, you know that no one else compares. And then one more observation. His glory prepares us for the suffering. His glory prepares us for the suffering that was to come. Verse 9 says, As they were coming down the mountain, this conversation takes place and to shorten it for time's sake we'll jump to verse 11 
And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Notice Jesus' reply. He says, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And then he asks a question. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? He goes on, but I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Notice that on the way down the mountain, the disciples ask this question about Elijah. They ask about why the teachers of the law uh, teach that Elijah must come first before the Messiah. And Jesus acknowledges this role of Elijah predicted in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And then he adds another thought that Elijah restores all things. And then he answers again further with his own question about the Son of Man's suffering and rejection. So Jesus answers their question with his own question. Whatever restoring Elijah does, this does not prevent the suffering of Jesus in the way that Jesus describes this event. And then Jesus does the next thing. He tells them, Elijah has already come and that they did with him what they wished. Matthew's gospel spells this out more clearly that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. Verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 13 says, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. In other words, he was saying the Elijah to come was John the Baptist. John came in the spirit of Elijah, one person who would come announcing this next move of God, ministering in isolation as a sole voice calling out the truth of God. And John's ministry is very, very similar to what Elijah had done when he was the one prophet who would stand up against all the others who were worshiping the Baals. John's mission was to speak prophetically about Jesus alone and to turn the focus of the people toward an expectation of the Messiah's coming. And so Jesus reveals that that prophecy was fulfilled through Elijah and it reveals, the, uh, through John the Baptist, rather, and it was uh, revealed in that moment to them how great of a role that John the Baptist had actually played. And this also tells us that this mountaintop experience of seizing, of seeing Jesus' glory was designed to prepare them for his own resurrection, uh, rather, his own rejection and suffering on the way to the resurrection. Peter would later write these words in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He added a few verses later, we ourselves heard the voice that came down from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. This was part of Jesus' work in preparing Peter and the disciples to deal with the crushing disillusionment of the upcoming betrayal, trial, and the cross. And these moments of glory were preparing Peter for his own suffering for the name and the cause of Jesus. When you and I have these moments where we see the glory of Jesus, all of a sudden you know that no one else compares and you can face whatever lies ahead. Now, we're not going to necessarily experience a transfiguration that was a one-time event that never was repeated. But there are moments when the Lord breaks through to you. It might be in a time of prayer where all of a sudden you sense the whisper of God saying, you are mine and you belong to me. Or in one of those moments when you're pondering about your role in life and you're asking God, you know, can you use me? Will you use me? And you sense God leading that thought in your mind or a whisper that you sense and he's saying, I have a purpose for you. 
don't give up. And God breaks into our lives every once in a while. And when that happens, we get just a little glimpse of his glory. And a little glimpse of his glory will carry you a long way. Maybe it even happens in the midst of communion or in the midst of a prayer time or in the midst of a worship time. When that happens, give way to that moment. I remember one time I went to a worship event with uh, Dedrick Terry, who was our, our worship leader before David Cote came on about 20 years ago. And we were both blown away by some of the music and the lines and some songs we'd never heard before. And I remember in the thousands of people that were, that were in that place, I got down on my knees in the midst of that place and I was bawling my eyes out because I'd seen something and felt something from Jesus that I'd never felt before. What do you do when you have your mountaintop experience? Do you shut it down? Do you dive more deeply into it? I'd like to suggest you do the latter and stop and let it soak in because when you've seen the glory of Jesus, you know that nobody else compares and you know that he's preparing you to be able to face whatever lies ahead. Let's pray. God, thank you for orchestrating every once in a while a moment or an event of glory where all of a sudden we sense you in a new way, we see you in a new way, we understand more about you. We don't always feel you every moment. One of the songs we sang earlier acknowledges that. But it's as we enter into your presence and as we worship you, you are capable of changing the heart. You're changing, capable of opening the eyes. I pray that you'd use this morning and these reflections that we've been going through here together about the transfiguration to lead us not just to an emotional high but to a new move of God in our lives where you change us from the inside out and you lead to behaviors that reflect the declarations of justification and love and righteousness and grace and forgiveness and mercy that you declare over us. And you make us more like the people you have called us to be. Have your way with each of us today. In Jesus' mighty name.